Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome or welcome back to the 105th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good afternoon, Matt. Good afternoon, Mark. Listeners are going to find out very quick. I don't sound like myself. Uh, Sinuses are hitting me like a brick wall, my friend. Yeah, I know. I heard it in your voice when you walked into the office this morning. So hope you feel better soon, buddy. Yeah, it's all in my head. I'm on. My wife's got me all on the right track. I'm getting better, but I got this little cough. I got the sinus pressure. So listeners, I apologize ahead of time. Yeah, weather hasn't been helping you out here lately. It's, you know, it's hot and then hot and humid and then rainy and not helping you out we'll try to get through it um before we begin as always uh take a first few minutes to recap the performance for the month in the year of the major indexes that we track and these numbers are as of the market close on uh july 7th of 2021 S&P 500 index is up 1.46% for the month and up 16.08% for the year. The Dow up 0.54% for the month and up 13.34% for the year. The NASDAQ up 1.11% for the month and up 12.68% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index is down 2.45% for the month and up 14.1% for the year. The Vanguard International ETF X United States down 0.38% for the month and up 8.8% for the year. The three-month T-bill yielding 0.05%, the two-year Treasury yielding 0.22%, and the 10-year Treasury yield is sitting at 1.33%. And that 10-year yield's not a typo. Yeah, it's coming down. Coming down. What happened to all those inflation fears, Mark? <laughs> I have Tell to us spi- how you're real. I have to, I have to spike the football. That's fine. That. That's fine. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, headlines and current events from, from the week. Uh, European markets have been weak compared to the U.S., Matt, um, lately, which people are saying are due to concerns of the spread of the Delta COVID variant. But honestly, who really knows for sure? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, I just don't know how much of this is <clears throat> lack of news headlines and this is what the media is focusing on right. or if it's. Yeah, something to keep an eye on. Yep. Uh, lumber futures have come down uh, down 42% in June, which was its worst month on record dating back to 1978. Um, the building commodity is now down more than 13% in 2021. And there's this quote from uh, Brad McMillan, who's the CIO at Commonwealth. He says, quote, this drop suggests that the cause of that inflation, this mismatch of supply and demand will not last forever. As suppliers across industries get their acts together, those shortages will fade along with the inflation. That looks to be happening for lumber now and will happen for other inputs later. Golf clap. Yeah. So it certainly seems like it's happening now. Um, So we'll just keep an eye on it because the truth be told, no one really knows what's going to happen six months from now. Yeah. You know, what I'll say also to listeners is someone might say, well, why is the lumber still expensive at XYZ store I go to to get it? You know, they got to work through that supply. I mean, they bought that lumber and it might have been bought at a lot higher price. And so until that inventory is worked through, that was purchased to higher prices, 
but I can I can show you a chart showing you the futures contract on the CME and it's come down drastically. Yeah, yeah. So they still have to get their money out of it because they paid way That's higher right. than the price of That's it right. right. Now. And once that once that higher cost inventory is worked through, it's when you're gonna to start to see prices come down. Yeah. Um, next, the yield desert gets <clears throat> drier with a new all-time low for U.S. junk bond yields of 3.78%. That's insane. Yeah. That's less than uh, the all-in yield on investment-grade corporate bonds as recently as during the pandemic. And this was uh, as of June 28th, according to Bloomberg. Um, another example of this was a tweet from Brian Chapada on June 25th. And he said, a junk bond maturing in seven years just priced to yield 2.45% annually. That's just That's insane. not a typo. Junk bond, 2.45%. Now, why I think that's notable for listeners, there's a mismatch, in my opinion, between, between risk and reward here. And you got very little reward for, I feel, a lot more risk than 2.45 is justifying. Yeah. So you just want to take 30 seconds and just explain in layman's terms what a junk bond is? Absolutely. So listeners, you have something called an investment grade bond. So there's these rating agencies like S&P, Moody's, Fitch, anything that is triple B or higher. So it goes triple A, double A single A, and then it goes to triple B. Triple B is the lowest rung of investment grade. In plain English, it means that banks can invest their reserves in those bonds. Right, because they're deemed as... Financially sound. Right. That's a very loose term. That could be a whole podcast in itself. Right, and as a reminder to listeners, before Lehman went under, they were rated as investment grade. They were single A the Friday before they went under. So that is not a a uh a thing that you, you just got to take it with a grain of salt right Absolutely. because anything can happen yeah it's just kind of a rule of thumb so anything that is double b and below so double b and then it goes single b and then it goes into the c's anything in that area is considered junk high yield there's a lot of fancy names for it and usually you know because you're taking on more risk the yield, you should the be interest payment every year is going to be higher. You're going to take more risk. risk. You should be compensated for right. it. Right. And so to see a seven-year uh, high-yield bond price at a yield of 2.45, in my opinion, that's a big mismatch between actual reward and the level of risk you're taking. And that's that's a concern. Yeah, for sure. Um Lastly, uh, the S&P 500 index has been up over 5% for five consecutive quarters for only the second time in history. The other time was back in 1953 and 1954. It's only one data set, but it should be noted that the next four (laughs) quarters, uh, it gained another 26.4% at that time. And that was from Ryan Dietrich on July 1st. So again, small sample set, but... Um, last time that happened, uh, returns were, were pretty good going forward. Pretty interesting, you know? So listeners, again, I apologize for my, <clears throat> my sinuses, but you okay if I kick it off with tweets, articles, and research? Please. All right. Got a couple. First is an update on the U.S. savings rate. This is a tweet from Liz Saunders, Mark, on June 28th. Liz is the um, chief investment strategist at, uh, at Schwab. And she had a chart, and it looked like it was from Bloomberg. And it showed savings rate going back to 2005. When the pandemic initially hit, the average savings rate peaked at just a little bit shy of 35%. That's just, people couldn't go anywhere. They couldn't spend their money. 
Well, we're back down to 12%, 12.4%. The previous month was 145 And this is still abnormally high when you look at the data. And what this says to me, the tea leaves, why it's relatable, American consumer, their balance sheet on average is good. Their savings rate is still double digits. And this says to me, as things continue to open up, he or she, the American consumer, is going to be spending a lot of money. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's important to clarify, too, that this personal savings rate that we always talk about, because we talked about it a lot over the past year, that percentage that Matt just said, so currently at 12.4%, that's 12.4% of disposable income. Correct, sir. Right. So I just want people to, to recognize that. Thank but you. yeah, I mean, when things open back up and people can do things again, it's just the math is that, you know, the savings rate's going to go down and we're going to return to our, <laughs> our normal American consumption ways. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the, the history, I mean, having a savings rate in the five to 6% <coughs> range is normal. Yeah. Right. All right, so I have a series of three different quotes I've selected this week. And I want, and I know I always get this, but for the listeners so they hear this, I want Mark's unfiltered comments on these quotes. Okay? Do that. Here we go. First tweet is by Bill Brewster. He's an investor. He had this tweet on June 25th. Ready? The younger me used to see what I perceived to be a crazy valuation and dismiss it. Now I wonder why the valuation might be justified. I'm glad the old me is dead. Yeah. Mark, your initial response. Yeah. And I'm not going to pound the table because we've talked about this so many times on the podcast before. But I think the first thing that comes to my mind when I read this is that people in investing, they seem to be locked into a certain viewpoint or a certain strategy their whole investing career. And they're not open to hearing the other side of the coin or, you know, listening to, to other ideas. So I think it's just important for people to go into investing, you know, if you're just starting off to have an open mind or if you're into it and you've just been so siloed in this one uh, mindset that it's okay to be open to that not being viable anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think there's so many investors that just are stuck on this. I'm looking at the price to earnings ratio of this stock. And if it's above the historical average, it's overvalued. I'm not even going to look at it. And there's just so many stocks they would have missed out on. Yeah, I agree. Next quote from Daniel Crosby, a tweet on June 28th. Here we go. Portfolio changes should be motivated by the headlines of the client's lives and not news headlines. Mark? Yeah, I'm probably <laughs> going to go back and read retweet that after this podcast Are you gonna I, think do that? that's you like great. That I think that's perfectly said um, because you only need to change your strategy if something in your personal financial life has changed in my opinion meaning that when you see something scary on the news headlines that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to make a change or even that that's going to affect you at all Right. So we go back to this this mindset of, you know, we come up, us advisors come up with a game plan and a strategy for clients. And we're going to stick to that strategy unless something materially changes in the client's life. Yeah. I mean, the other thing, and just to build on that, Mark, that's great feedback is, you know, people have retirement accounts. These aren't a type of accounts that they just take total withdrawals from on a normal basis. Usually the timeline they have is very long term. Does it really matter? what the Fed minutes said earlier today at 2 p.m.? No. Does it matter what the jobs report is going to say next month? No. Okay. So ultimately, 
I want to try to disengage this thought process of these ongoing news headlines to have people start thinking more and more about their plan, their overall risk for their life, not making decisions based upon what the market news is. Yeah, and it's just interesting because I was reading something a couple weeks ago that said, you know, when all right, we might even talked about it on the podcast, but, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, you didn't know what the market did for the day until you got home to watch the evening news. Right. True. True. And now you can check it at any point during the day. Right. And then and now there's stuff that, you know, like Bitcoin that's trading 24 seven and everything. You know, I I don't think it's going to happen. but I'm going to throw this out there. I would actually love to see it go back to, you know, people not checking this stuff intraday and just checking at the end of the week or the end of the month or you know the end of the day even because right now with just the access we have at our fingertips with these these smartphones i think is doing a lot of harm financially to people now i'm i'm realistic enough to know that this technology is not going away anytime soon but i'd like to challenge people out there to go back to not checking it as often you know we've heard stories of clients that we've worked with that are now retired. They worked for 30 or 40 years. They saved into their 401k each and every pay period, and they didn't touch a thing, not a thing, didn't pay attention to it. And typically in my experience, Matt, they're better off. Those are the ones that are better off. They really are, Mark. You know, so, you know, so I would like to hear more stories come out about that to, to kind of get people back into that mindset, because I just truly believe it's beneficial for the majority you're exactly right i uh always giggle there's a uh, a story that goes out that you know people participate in their company's stock uh, purchase plan and you know like they get these dividend checks and you know a story i heard once is this guy thought that the value of his um stock option account was just the the value of his quarterly dividend check and it turned out, you know, he had like seven figures in company stock. He just never looked at it. Right, right. I Which love stories pretty, like pretty that. pretty incredible. All right, I got one more. So this is a tweet by Ed Bergato. That's how I would say it. Okay, July 1st. Good investment decisions create a cycle of low investment activity. Mark, your response. Yeah, I think this just goes back to to the quote, I don't know, it might have been Warren Buffett back in the day that he said, you know, 90% of the time I'm sitting on my hands, mm-hmm. right? And I think that that is true because I think when you let things play out and you're not making investment decisions every single day, every single week or every single month even, that, you know, over the long term, you're going to be just fine. And, you know, when people are you know jumping in and out in and out in and out that's when you start to have problems so think back to the great financial crisis right you know i've talked to several people that still haven't gotten back into the market after that because you know they were so scarred it's true um but you know i think this is this is a great way of just simply saying you know you don't have to be actively doing things to feel like you're making the right decision. Sometimes the right decision is sitting on your hands and doing nothing. That was going to be my point, Mark, is listeners, it's only a matter of time before we go through another multi-month period like last February and March. Will the reason for the correction or the massive sell-off be because of a pandemic? Maybe, maybe not. But what's going to happen is, is we're going to have periods or bouts of a sell-off. Human nature 
psychologically, it feels good to do something, Mark. Mm -hmm. It feels good to take action. And usually, in my opinion, tends to be the wrong move if you're a long-term investor. Yeah, I agree with that. And that's the reason I wanted to highlight this one. Yeah. So uh, back to you, my friend. Uh, so my first thing was a tweet from Drew Wells on June 28th. And Drew said, Staples moving to new relative lows versus the S&P 500 just ain't evidence of a risk off within equities. So we posted this chart um, on his Twitter account that shows consumer staples relative to the S&P 500. And it is making currently uh, new lows of the since 2007 to the slowest lowest point since you know 2006 2007 it looks like and explain why this is normally something that we would highlight um because you know we view staples as a safety trade right that's a risk off trade if consumer staples are outperforming other more aggressive areas of the market like technology and consumer discretionary right they tend to be a safe haven right so if you know relative to the general market if consumer staples is underperforming that's just kind of a hint or you know something we look at as as a tool in our toolbox to say hey this might be risk on right now right um Next is a tweet from Ryan Dietrich on June 27th. And Ryan says, 2021 is about to be one of the best six, first six months ever. Good news is a strong first six months usually leads to continued strength in the final six months. In fact, when up greater than 12.5% year to date at the end of June, the median return rest of year jumps to 9.7% versus median returns of 5% for all years. So we post this chart that if the S&P 500 index is up greater than 12.5% after six months, the bulls usually smile. And this data is going back to 1954. So we're, uh, we're in relatively friendly waters, I think. Um, the, the average return the rest of the year is 7.1%. And as Ryan said previously, the, the median return jumps to 9.7%. So, um, you know, not a whole lot of times this has happened. It looks like it happened only about 15 times, but um, you know, just another thing to keep in mind that just because we've had a strong first of the half of the year doesn't mean we can't have another strong second half of the year. And I, I'm glad you highlighted this because I think psychologically, Mark, investors are seeing these headlines about stocks hitting 52-week highs or you know the stat you threw out at the beginning about five consecutive quarters of the S&P being up over 5%. Human nature immediately thinks, all right, this is long in the tooth. I need to be stepping away. And the historical data doesn't back that up. It just doesn't, in my right. opinion. Right. You know, so I just think that we need to we need to start changing this narrative that just because things are going good doesn't mean that 2008 is going to happen all over again. You know, what just gets me is you, you, you see these financial pundits on TV um, and they're 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 trying to pick certain data points that this is the beginning of a next, you know, 30, 40 percent correction and a broken clock is right twice a day. And so I just I want to I love that you're throwing these stats out there because it doesn't necessarily mean the market is going to tank. Yeah. And the flip side could be we could have a weak second half of the year. We could. could Anything can happen. You know, we're just going to wait 
and see what what price does right the only yeah. way we can quantify that is after it already happens right yeah so. uh real quick why don't you remind listeners how they can access these show notes yeah so uh follow us uh at jessup wealth on twitter uh go to our facebook page and linkedin page uh, under jessup wealth management uh, finally, Matt, uh, I have a tweet from Michael Batnick on July 2nd, and we've talked about this before, but he says, we're not talking about the biggest risk to the market because risk never tips its hand. It's not inflation or COVID or anything else on our radar. And this goes back to a blog post that we brought up um, earlier this year, or I think it was actually in 2020, but it was by Morgan Housel. And he he defines what risk is. And, you know, everyone is always talking about, okay, what's the risk in the market? Okay, we have the pandemic. We have, you know, trade relations with U.S. and China. That can trigger a sell-off. But typically, if you go back and look in time, all of these things that trigger these big market corrections or recessions, no one is ever talking about it, right? It's always the thing no one's talking about. And again, so put this in context right go back to the great financial crisis I, michael burry was screaming about it but it wasn't on it was everyone's mainstream. radar right? it wasn't mainstream so all of the all of these things you hear about every single day tension between us and china or us and russia could cause a sell off or you know this delta variant uh, of covid you know it, none i can i I'm, i never use the word guarantee but i would uh strongly say that the next thing that causes a 30% sell-off in the markets is not, not going to be on about. anyone's radar. So yeah. just get that out of your head. I absolutely agree because the market does a very good job of pricing in those things in. Mm -hmm. So let's use something that's very relatable in the near term. Pending legislation of potential higher taxes. Yep, that's what I was thinking. Pending legislation about infrastructure. The market continues to price in that stuff. So when it gets when it happens... It's not going to, the market has already baked it in. Mm -hmm. And I just want to throw that out there that I agree with you that just because, you know, this is being talked about, if it's being talked about, it's probably getting priced into the market. Agreed. Okay. Agreed. So something different this week, I'm going to turn it back to you for the financial planning topic of the week. You know, I, um, I, I rarely do the financial planning topic of the week and of all weeks, the week I'm not feeling well, of course, is the week I'm going to talk a lot here. Right. So, uh, listeners, your patience is very much appreciated during this, and I promise you I'm doing my absolute best not to cough. Um, but having a sinus in your head is <coughs> a challenge. <laughs> so, the article I picked for listeners this week, Mark, is from uh, Forbes, and it's called Guide to Income for Early Retirees, Seven Rules. So what I'd like to do is I'm going to cover these quote unquote seven rules and I would like your feedback. Yeah, I haven't looked at this yet. So I'm going to I'm going to hit you. You ready? Ready. Rule number one, postpone Social Security. And I'm going to read about uh, for 30 seconds here and I'm going to ask for a response. Social Security is a lifetime inflation adjusted low risk annuity. It's valuable when you collect before turning age 70. You are, in fact, selling off a piece of the asset and probably getting a poor price for it. Do people understand this? Not many. Only a tiny fraction, only a tiny fraction of retirees wait to start their benefits at age 70. So the question is, 
When to collect it can be a complicated one. And if you have doubts, you should invest in one of those optimizers that dictates your moves. But here's a quick answer that works for most people who are no longer working. If you can wait, here's the slightly longer answer. You ready for this? A, if you're single, collect late if your health is good and early if you expect to die young. B, if you're buried, collect late if you're a higher earner in the couple and early if you're a lower earner. And lastly, it says the reason A is that the mortality tables built into benefit formulas are too pessimistic. A single healthy person is probably going to live long enough to come out ahead by waiting. Your yeah. comment. Yeah, I think, I think the general consensus, which I agree with, is that if you can wait, then go ahead and wait. Because <laughs> each year you wait past your full retirement age, you get about an 8% bump in your benefit. And that's a for sure like locked in 8% bump right? Yeah. Um, so, but you know, at the same time, if you're not in good health or you have other reasons for it, that you, you need the social security income to be able to live, you want to live the way you want to live in retirement, then there's no shame in taking it early or taking it at your full retirement age too. So again, it's a very personalized individual situation, but if you can afford to do so, wait, because you're going to get the most bang for your buck. I kind of relate it to your 401k and, and the match you're getting. If you're not, if your company's matching 7%, one for one up to 7%, and you're only contributing 3%, you're leaving, money you're leaving free money on the table. It's the same thing with social security. If you don't need it, then why would you take it? Because you're leaving free money on the table later in life. I agree with this. So number one, I think you and I are in tandem. Okay, number two, don't fixate on yield. I'm going to read this to you before I get a response. You might need to draw 3% a year from your portfolio. A mix of stocks and bonds is going to yield only half that. What do you do? Confronting a universe of small yields, people make large mistakes. They go all in for risk, owning junk bonds and shares of companies with unsustainable dividends. Or they become suckers for the latest complicated high-fee concoction that Wall Street dangles a high payout before their eyes. Wow. There's a better way. Buy an index fund that mixes stocks and bonds, such as the Vanguard Balanced Index Fund. Collect a 1.5% dividend and then sell 1.5% of the shares every year. And for a disclaimer, we're not uh, recommending or not recommending that specific example. Mark, your response. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a huge misconception around, you know, dividend yields and, you know, junk bonds, right? Dividend yields are high because there's perceived risk. It's the same thing with interest rates with with junk bonds. You know, you pay higher for a you know, you you get paid an interest rate that's higher for an energy MLP that's balance sheet is a disaster, right? Because you're taking more risk. There is a lot more risk that that company is going to go under, you know, compared to Apple or Amazon, And right? they have to entice. Right. Investors, And that's why Apple's dividend yield is a lot lower than a lot of these energy companies because there's perceived to be less risk with Apple. So if you are someone that is, you know, very high on dividend paying stocks, that is completely fine. But you can't mix you getting your dividend payment for lower, higher dividend payment for lower risk, because that is definitely not the case. That's right. And there could be instances where the share price declines more than the actual dividend yield. So not you're down. Yeah. So the reason you bought it in the first place completely becomes negated. Right. And again, these dividends that companies pay out, they're not for sure. You saw in when COVID hit, there's a 
bunch of companies, companies in the S&P 500 that cut their dividends. It's true. So their dividend could get cut in, in my research. That's never really a good thing for the stock price, at least in the next year or so. Because, you know, if a company cuts their dividend, everyone's like, oh, something must be really wrong. They're not earning enough money to pay a dividend anymore. It's true. So that can always happen, too. So I'm hearing you say that you're in agreement not to fixate on yield. Yes. I'm with you. We're two for two. Okay, here we go. Number three. I want to get to the ones that we don't agree on. Oh, there's going to be some goodies in here. Number three, cash in taxable accounts. I'm sorry, let me say this again. Cash in taxable accounts before cashing in your IRA. So here's what he says. Short answer, cash in taxable account assets first. That's always the better strategy if you are destined to eventually use both the taxable assets and the tax sheltered assets for living expenses. Keep that IRA going as long as you can. Draw from the IRA when you either run out of other options or hit age 72 when withdrawals are required. That's kind of a loaded one, I feel like, because generally, yes, I agree with that. But if people are trying to optimize for paying the, the least amount of taxes possible in retirement now, then I, I, I slightly disagree with that. And let me tell you why. If you're married and you're filing joint, the standard deduction right now is roughly $25,000. So you can take $25,000 out of your 401k, pre-tax 401k, that's virtually tax-free, Right. And then you move over to your um, your your taxable income account, right? So, or, excuse me, your your taxable accounts. So, money that you pay capital gains tax on. So, roughly, you can realize. I think it's don't quote me on this. Somewhere between ten and ten and a half thousand of long term capital gains if you're joint, uh, married filing joint, and have zero tax consequences because you'll fall in the zero percent capital gains tax bracket, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're still at zero for the tax bill for the year. Then you move over to your Roth IRA any or your Roth 401k. Any money that you pull out of your Roth IRA or your Roth 401k, you owe zero taxes on. So then you move over to your savings account if you need more above that, right? So you have liquid money uh, in your savings account or your checking account that you can access. And then after that, you can get into Social Security. So if you're trying to optimize your tax bill every single year, which again, I'm not advocating that that's the thing people should be focusing on, then there could be a different way to go about it. But, but generally, it makes sense to have that money grow tax deferred or tax free if it's in a Roth IRA for as long as possible. Yeah, I mean, my whole two cents is this, you know, all these fancy, complicated financial planning software dictates exactly what this gentleman is suggesting. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a case-by-case situation based upon your income. And unfortunately, this is one of those guidelines that I think people just follow way too religiously. Yeah, blindly. And and I'm not okay with that. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to mark this as I disagree. Where do you land? Yeah, I would say disagree. We're two for we're three for three. Three for three. Okay, here we go. Number four. Ready? It's called Rothify. It makes sense to prepay tax on some of your retirement money by converting a portion of your IRA to a Roth IRA. In the example above, with $100,000 in IRA and a 30% tax bracket, you could write out a check to the tax collector for $30,000 using non-IRA money and thereby boost the effective value of the tax-free investment from seventy dollars to $100,000. How much to convert? Not too much. A little at a time. Your response. 
Yeah, I I would <laughs> say that I agree with this um, because as an advisor, it's a lot easier for me to help people manage their tax liabilities in retirement when they have access to tax-free funds. Um, however, sometimes people can't contribute to an, a Roth IRA. They don't have access to a Roth 401k. You know, you can do the whole conversion thing and the backdoor conversion. Um, but yeah, I, I like to see people, even if it doesn't make sense optimally from a financial standpoint right now, I like to see people have at least some sort of a bucket in tax-free money because you can manage your tax liability in retirement a lot better. So I think you put it under the, you would agree with this. Mm -hmm. My two cents is the year after someone retires, they should be running these calculations or working with a professional and trying to convert a little bit every year. It could be something they should talk about. Yeah. Yep. All right. Four for four. Four for four. Here we go. Uh, this is where it's going to get fun. <laughs> Number five, don't withdraw money you don't need from an IRA. Suppose you're in a lower tax bracket this year and expect to be in a higher tax bracket later. Should you distribute a little extra from your IRA to take advantage of the lower rate? Nope. Your comment. That's an interesting one. I'm going to slap this guy. <laughs> um... Say that one more time. He says, suppose you're in a low tax bracket this year and expect to be in a higher tax bracket later. So you distribute a little extra money from your IRA to take advantage of the lower rate. Nope. I'm going to go first because this one, this one agitates me. Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you why. We have some older clients. We, we manage clients for clients of, of all ages. But there's some older clients we have in their 80s that are in a very low tax bracket. And guess what? Their beneficiaries are making bank. So what happens when that goes to the next generation and they got to take that money out in 10 years and it's going to be at their higher income rate? Yeah, good point. Why wouldn't you start draining that IRA at the parent's lower tax rate? Right. Yeah, I agree. And if it's if it's not going to materially affect this the, the owner's situation, then yeah, I I totally disagree with what he's saying I just, because I, I, if, I, if, I if just, you're if you're someone who values passing money to the next generation, then I think that that's baloney. I just, I very much disagree with this. Yeah, I do too. Five for five. Can you give, give us a tough one, please? Uh, I got a good one for you here. Annuitize. He thinks, on average, you should annuitize about 15% of your savings, Mark. The kind of annuity to buy is one that pays a fixed monthly sum over your lifetime. There could be complicated variations on this simple product, and the complicated ones could cost more. Say no to those. Go for the fixed payout. I'll let you go first. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't agree with that. Explain to listeners what annuitization means and what he's insinuating here. Yeah. So when you get an annuity, um, you know, you a fixed you, annuity, a, a fixed annuity. Um, you give a whole bunch of money up front just to get paid back immediately. There's immediate <coughs> annuities and there's you know annuities that start at a later date. But you're giving the annuity company or the bank or whatever financial institution a lump sum of money in most cases, and then they're going to pay you out a fixed amount every single month for the rest of your life starting on X date, right? Mm -hmm. So um, the problem with that is typically from what I've seen over the long term, um, you know, what the annuity company generates in a return 
doesn't compare to what you can do in the markets, right? And the other negative part with the annuity, again, if you value passing money to the next generation, you can't do that with an annuity. And explain to listeners why. Because so usually with an annuity, you can do a, a single payment where once you die, the annuity stops, then the annuity company keeps that money. And I, that's what he's suggesting in this. And you can do a 50% joint with rights of survivor. So when you die, your spouse gets 50% of the monthly payment that you were receiving. And you take a little bit less per month for that. When the spouse dies, <laughs> the kids, the grandkids get nothing. So what happens if you name that spouse and God forbid your spouse passes first and you took a lower amount the rest of your life for what? Nothing. But I will say that there, again, it's person by person. There are certain situations where someone doesn't have a whole lot of family. They're single. You know, they don't foresee donating this money. They don't have any charitable desires that sometimes if this monthly payment is more than enough than they would ever need to live they want to live, then go ahead. It, it, it makes sense in those instances. But again, going back to not realizing what the risk is, people think that there are no risks with annuities. Annuity companies can go under too. They can. So again, is it likely for a lot of them to? No, but there is risk with that. No right? one thought a wait was going to happen either. Right. No one thought Lehman Brothers was going to go under. Correct. My two cents here is I am very much against annuitization. This is why insurance companies own some of the biggest buildings in the world. They're smart. Mm -hmm. And I think annuitization was very popular in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And to see somebody sign over their money to an insurance company is, is heartbreaking to me personally. And I think if they have proper education and, and uh, there's other ways around it. And so I am I'm very much against annuitization. That could be another shirt. We should start a podcast store with like gear. I, mean, I hate annuitization should be one of the shirts. You put that on the list, Jenna, of things we got to do. Annuitization's a scam. <laughs> okay. That might be a compliance issue. <laughs> Personal opinion. True. Expression. <laughs> Number seven. Watch out for IRMA. IRMA stands for Income Related Monthly Adjustment Amount. What am I talking about? There's a tax penalty for seniors with higher incomes. It comes in the form of a surcharge on Medicare premiums. And this usually starts if you're married filing jointly. <coughs> Excuse me. It starts at $176,000 of income to where you have this, this Medicare penalty. And I think watching out for it is something that should be noted. Your comment. Yeah, I, th I think it's one of those things that not a lot of people even know about, to be honest. Um, and, you know, people just don't realize it. And then all of a sudden next year, their Medicare premium, you know, doubles. For a year at least. Yeah, for a, for a year. Um, so where I see this being a, a pitfall is when you get a call where someone says, you know what, Matt, I just want to extinguish this debt. I'm going to take a big taxable distribution from my IRA. I just retired. My head hits the pillow at night. I want all my debt to be gone. And then you get the call a year later. My Medicare premiums have surged. What's going on here? Well, you took too much of a withdrawal in one year. I told you not to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that's a thing where, you know, we can run that calculation, right? How much are you going to be saving from interest payments over X amount of years compared towards, you know, 
how much are your Medicare premiums going to go up for the next year? And you can run that calculation and see what the cost benefit is. The cost benefit is. I'm just not in the camp that taking large, large six figure lump sum distributions in a given year to do those things. That's stuff you spread out over multiple years. Yeah, I agree. Right. I agree. Spread it out over two years, three, four be better. Yeah. But that's kind of my two cents there. And so I think that's a good kind of. Yeah, it's just something I think something that people need to be aware of. And, you know, us in the industry, you know, just do a good job of getting that out there so people are aware of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that is the um, that's the final rule. So that's, again, the guide to income for early retirees, seven rules. And I would say that we said yes to majority of them. Yeah, I think so, too. I got to I got to do some some digging and just find an article that's that I love and that you're going to hate. I think I don't think it'd take you too hard to, to find that. <laughs> I think I have my targets. <laughs> you know um, me well enough. So we do have one <laughs> listener question from John. John asks, what is your recommendation for weekly business, economic, financial and investing news? <laughs> The Wall Street Journal seems too much to digest on a daily basis. Your podcasts are great. So thank you for the nice comment, John. Um, Matt, you want to start or you want me to start? Mm, I'll start. So, um, John, great question, by the way. Um, and remember, what I'm about to go over and what Mark is going to go over is not biblical. This is not something that you know is, is hard and fast. We each have different maybe ideas or sites that we use to, to consume content or consume news. One that I think is pretty straightforward is from uh, a website called briefing.com. It's called page one. So if you go to briefing.com, there'll be um, some things at the top. You can click page one. It's usually about a 60 to 120 second read. And it gives you an idea of exactly what's going on that morning. I like that one. Are you a guy that, that quotes time in seconds instead of minutes? I'm very precise. This is something, and uh, my wife, it kind of gets to her sometimes because I'm like, hey, I'll be home in seven minutes. I'm usually home in seven minutes. It was just funny because I would have been, I just heard that and I was like, why didn't he just say one to two minutes? You know me. I'm very precise. I love it. I'm very precise. So uh, briefing.com, page one. I love that one. A site that I like just to get different uh, viewpoints or ideas, seekingalpha.com. That's a really good site. Um, Bloomberg, you can kind of garner the headlines pretty quickly from Bloomberg. That's another good one. Um, What about you? Yeah, I'll kind of take it. After that, we start going into our research sources that someone's going to have to pay for. Yeah, and I I think um, I'll take a little bit of a different route with that in that I know not everyone has a, a Twitter account. Um, but I would recommend it, you know, if you want to try to follow some more financial, uh, people on there, cause that's where we get a lot of our content we do. to be honest. Um, you know, and I can provide recommendations on, on people to follow, but you know, anywhere from people that are talking about the markets, talking about financial planning, talking about the emotional side of investing and financial planning, because those are the things that don't get the media headlines, but Boom. those are the things that people should be talking about. And again, this is why we started this podcast. We're not creating content. We're just putting content out there that people should be viewing instead of just watching the the evening news. And we want to make it relatable. And, and, and there's we have a bunch of ideas and when we quote articles and research. We are, I think, putting out actionable items that people can do some further research on and could really help them out. Yeah. So, um, 
maybe Jenna, maybe after this sometime this week or next week, we can do, I know we've sent you a list of some of our top follows on Twitter. Maybe we can share that on our Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn. Oh, it has been before. Okay. So if you want to check that out, John, um, you can, you can, on Fridays, we have following Fridays. So you can check that out. Or if you want a list, you can send an email to inquiries at Jessup Wealth Management and we'll get you that list. Um, but, but the reason why we highlight these people is they produce great content and we want to get that out there to people. Um, the and other thing that and I would make it relatable. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing I would say is, you know, there's other podcasts other than ourselves that do a really good job. If you want more information on financial planning, more information, uh, on the markets and investing and that type of thing. So, um, I mean, just search Apple podcasts or Spotify too. And it's just a good way to, you know, you drive to work in the morning, or if you're going to visit family or friends and you have an hour or two hours in the car, flip on a podcast that you can listen to. And I think that's why we started the podcast, cut through the noise, make it relatable. That's right. That's right. All right. Well, we will leave it there for the week. Uh, thank you everybody for listening to the 105th episode of the independent advisors podcast. Hope you all have a wonderful, safe weekend. Look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks for being patient with me. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors Podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.